Hey everybody, we want to say a big new polity sorry for not having new content out to you. We're in the middle of building our new studio. Uh, it's going to be beautiful and great. There's a lot of details on it that I'm excited to share with you at some point, not now. Um, we There is a pretty steep material cost uh, to building this out. And so if you can help us uh, get that done, we'd really appreciate that. You can donate um, at newpoly.com slash donate. Um, in the meantime, while we're awaiting the politics podcast to uh, come to its next episode, we wanted to give you this episode today. It's an interview between Nick Plato, Alex Plato's brother, twin brother, and Andrew Jones. It gives you a little bit of background of where Andrew was raised, his conversion into the faith, his conversion into Catholic politics. Um, and so it might help you trust Andrew a little bit more or distrust him or just, but it's entertaining. It's absolutely hilarious at parts. And uh, we hope that you enjoy it. And uh, thanks so much for your patience um, while we are getting you the next series. Thanks and take care. Welcome to Plato's Dialogues. Uh, today I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones. Andrew holds a PhD in medieval history from St. Louis University with a focus on the Church of the High Middle Ages. His work explores historical, political theology and post-liberal thought. He is the director of Catholic Studies at Franciscan University, and he is also an editor for New Polity. In 2017, he published Before Church and State, a study of social order in the sacramental kingdom of St. Louis the Ninth. And today I'm really excited to talk to him about pretty much all those ideas and to get to know him a little bit more personally. I'm fairly new to the world of post-liberal thought, and I've only recently discovered some of your work, Andrew. Um, in fact, I teaching history at my school, we actually just watched the first 20 minutes of your liturgical cosmos video uh, wow. that you did in 2015, and the students loved it. So I definitely want to get to that a little bit later. But before I go into ideas, I want to talk to you a little bit about your upbringing, uh, how you got where you got today, and just get to know you a little bit. Great, great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, so besides your mother and father or God, where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was, uh, I'm a West Coast guy. So I, I was born oh. in California, Southern California as in um, various places in Southern California as a little kid, then moved up to Washington State uh, as a school kid, and then lived outside of Seattle there um, through high school. So, uh, you know, West Coast, up and down the West Coast. All right. Do, do you have siblings? Um, and what's, what was your family like? How many children or, or not children? How many siblings yeah. did you have? I have two brothers. I have an okay. older brother and a younger brother. I'm in the middle. And okay. We are all just 13 months apart. So my brother, my older brother is 13 months older than me. My younger brother, 13 months younger. And so we were a tight little group of guys growing up. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that sounds outstanding. So uh, did you, in terms of, you know, physical brawls, um, who came out on top with your bros? Well, with three, you see, this is a sort of a lesson in Hobbesian politics, right? Because <laughs> it always ends up being an alliance of two against one. Excellent. The way of you have to play the shifting alliance game, right? And you can right. never be sure when your when your uh, you know your your ally against the third is going to switch sides. <laughs> it's it's a very 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 tenuous political situation. Any given brawl. It sounds like it. It sounds like right. you might the, uh, the upshot is there's always one guy getting beat up by two. That's right. So I guess I guess it's how good you are at making those Hobbesian alliances. That maybe right. shows us why you are here today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So now, do you, now that's a little bit of your upbringing. Um, and were you always interested in history and philosophy and theology? Where did you grow up as a Catholic or or what? Yeah, yeah. No, my my family was um, very uh, uh, intellectual, rather intellectual, very political. Okay. So. Like our dining room, our dinner room, uh, dining room conversations around the dinner table were always about basically how bad the communists were <laughs> and uh, all the reasons why they were evil. Um, but no, honestly, my parents were are, are pretty are, are pretty sophisticated, right? and 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 they taught me how to think about the world. I think, or at least 
Yeah. And, um, but they were really very political. Our, our, our religion, such as it was, was, um, the Republican party, I think. (laughs) I see. Okay. So are they, are they still alive and are they still Republican? Yes. And not really. So, (laughs) so what happened was what, what, what really what happened was my parents put myself and my brothers in parochial school and Catholic school when we were kids. And because they were really, my parents were really primarily cold warriors. Um, the Catholics were good guys, right? Cause the Catholics also disliked the communists and, uh, you know, Bill Buckley was a Catholic, so it can't be all bad. Exactly. I love yeah. Bill Buckley. <laughs> <laughs> so they put us in parochial school and that we ended up converting to Catholicism as little kids, my brothers and I did. I think I was baptized when I was 12 or 13. Okay. Um, and my parents did not, though, until years later. Oh, interesting. But, yeah, it's a weird, it's a kind of a weird situation. So, so, so my brothers and I did as kids, mostly because all of our friends were Catholic and not because we really knew anything about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Western Washington is hardly a bastion of um, thorough Catholic pieces. And so right. I didn't actually I, learn anything about it. <laughs> I, I, under, I understand that completely being as I, my mission work, so to speak, at, at Chester and Academy out here is, is in the, on the West Coast, of course. Yeah. So I know I, we're in the spiritual wasteland out here. Uh, yeah. So I completely under, I understand what you're talking about. You know, we are the heart of the, the Chaz in Seattle and, yes. you know, the, the Red House in Portland. So I, I get it. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so what's strange is that we converted to Catholicism and were baptized and everything, but didn't know anything about Catholicism. I had no idea what it was. Okay. And, and so as I got older in my teenage years and was reading a lot of history, a lot of political thought, um, I totally abandoned it. I mean, I didn't even think of myself as really abandoning it. I never really thought of myself as having it, you know? Like, wow. I, wow. Okay. I, so I guess at some point in the back of my head, I knew that I was Catholic, but it was irrelevant to my intellectual development um, through my teenage years and through most of my college years. Okay. So oh, so in college at some point, you had some kind of awakening then or some kind of uh, awareness or turning back then to Catholicism. Is that what happened? Or Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So, so in, in studying um, the humanities in general, economics, philosophy, uh, history, I, I mean, to make a, a long story short, I mean, I, I basically became convinced um, that my options were either nihilism or uh-huh. Catholicism. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> that those were the only two sort of intellectually respectable positions to have. And that's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> because I, I know a guy, I actually know a guy that I respected that had actually challenged my kind of Republican upbringing as well. Um, um, with uh, basically Catholic social thought, but he's, he's not a Catholic now, definitely not. And he wasn't a Catholic then, but he told me, he said, I feel like the only options in my life are, he, he was into radical orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Um, so like uh, the Harawas stuff. Sure. And he was into that, or he said either that or what he would call traditional Catholicism, where you actually take the church seriously and try to follow what the church teaches. He said, other than that, and like a nihilistic kind of Nietzschean, consistency epistemologically there's no other option that's what he said right and, and that's very basically, that's basically the upshot is that is that you know either either nothing matters or everything matters right 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 precisely exactly. the middle that you can't maintain um and have yeah. any ability uh or so, so. <laughs> yeah no that's interesting would you would you relate that at all with um gk chesterton and kind of his journey i mean your upbringing obviously gk was was raised very intellectual but as a unitarian but then he came back, obviously, to the faith through Anglicanism and then Catholicism. It sounds similar in the sense your family was intellectual, you had lively conversations, and then you realized that the you came back home, so to speak, the long route, kind of like Chesterton. Is that yeah? No, I, I that think that, that I think that is that is right. I mean, I I I think you know if you don't have faith, and one of the things I, I think a lot of people who maybe. A lot of people maybe can't have a hard time relating to this because they don't grow, they haven't grown up in the sort of truly secularized environment that those of us on the West Coast mm-hmm. secular families actually grow up in, right? Where like okay. God really isn't there, right? Right. Uh-huh. It's <laughs> so not relevant. You, yeah. Yeah. And when you don't 
when you grow up that way and you live in that world, then I think that you can think it through to like actually to the abyss, right? Like where you're looking over the abyss into nothing. And, and, and if you're really honest with yourself and you look down into that abyss, you, I don't know. It's like, it's like, it's like it allows that kind of that, sort of abrupt turnaround because because the truth is I think hovering over the the abyss of nothing is not that far away from yeah, wow, yeah. into the infinite God, right? Like right. there's a certain mysterious terror in both. <laughs> yeah. It's it's almost like I mean it, I think Kierkegaard said you might know this, but I, I've heard Kierkegaard said something to the effect that though the sin of his time that he felt like was the worst sin was apathy. Because at least if you hate God, you're actually closer to loving him. Than when you're apathetic. No, you that's know? right. Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, the so lukewarm is the worst. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the stark realism, so to speak, like when you said about looking into the abyss, that that's yeah. uh that's that's amazing and, and interesting how that worked in your life. So I, as a person of faith, you would obviously say that is the most important and core aspect of your life. Yeah. No. I, very much so. So I I, I decided um, it was I guess my junior year in college that I was going to be Catholic. So I was like, okay, if I, if everything matters and that, that, that is Roman Catholicism. So I'll be Catholic. And then I, I sort of realized, Oh, I already am. I just need to go to. <laughs> and then, and then um, I remember sort of having that realization and then I didn't know what it meant. I said prayers or anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a purely sort of epistemological sort of intellectual crutch or something. Anyway, yeah. So I, I remember I was with my my now wife, who was then my girlfriend, who was a cradle Catholic, but had just kind of cultural Catholic and, you know, and fallen away too. And, and uh-huh. I was like, to be Catholic. And she's like, sure, fine, let's do that. <laughs> uh, it was like, well, what does that mean? And so we like, right. we looked up like the rules, you know, uh- <laughs> it was <laughs> like, get on google and do that or how did that yeah, work we didn't have google then right that was before oh, that's right that's right but, but we but we i remember we we looked it up um and and had a kind of list of of precepts that we had to follow and we're like okay well i guess we just obey all these rules it's like well we can do that <laughs> um and then it's been so we so we did we did our conversion maybe somewhat backwards where and we began uh-huh. We began with sort of a more scrupulous, scrupulous following of rules, and then hoping that we would eventually sort of um, have a spiritual awakening, or a, you know, uh-huh. some point encounter God directly. Yeah. Whereas I think, which which I think, you know, the, the the life project since that has been to actually make that a reality. But um, right, uh, it, it seems like a lot of people's conversion experiences are almost the opposite of that. Yeah, I was I was going to say a lot of people I think are exactly the opposite of that. They kind of come into it through experience, experience something with God, have some connection with some person they really love, and then oh, I'm going to try this, and then they come into the Catholic Church, right? Yeah, Yeah. so I came at it through law, which maybe tells you something about my personality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, indeed, it is giving a little bit of hints there, strongly. That's that's so history. So you got a little bit of faith there. Um, well, I guess before I go into history, I, you mentioned your wife. So what? Who is your wife? And you met, and you do you have children and your family? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So my wife Sarah, we met at Hillsdale College, where we went to undergrad, in Michigan. Okay. Um, she's from Ohio, and um, we got married, and we've been married now oh sixteen years or so. She's going to kill me, but I think it's been 16 years. And <laughs> we, can, we can edit this out. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll put the right number in. She won't actually kill me. She'll just like nod and go, well, of course. He, he. <laughs> and um, we have eight kids. Uh, actually, wow. The ninth. Congratulations. So, thank you. Yes, we have lots of – we're a clan. We're, we're, we're starting our own civilization. That that is true, and that is amazing, and more power to you. And and you know, in my mind, I mean, Andrew Willard Jones just went up like I don't know how many notches because having having eight kids staying alive, staying somewhat sane, at least you sound sane, and having your wife that's still with you. You know, apparently I'm putting up with you enough right now, and she's put up with you for at least 16 years, maybe more. <laughs> that that's pretty good. So congratulations, especially to her times eight, and going to be nine. Uh, yep. and wow, that is that is amazing and um, impressive. 
So yes. thank you for your for your for your sacrifice and for doing the doing the thing that we need in our civilization that is having children, teaching them, training them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what we're trying to do. Do our part. <laughs> yeah. So so what age to what what age? Oh, this is where it gets really interesting. Our oldest is thirteen. Oh oh wow. Okay. Yes, that does and get interesting. Yes, yes, yes. Um, she was twelve when the eighth was born. Oh, oh man. The math on that is uh, interesting. I, w- I would have thought impossible until I lived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can see how you, when you said you're, you're coming to realize and learn more of what faith is, I can see why. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, we have not had two years between any kids. So our oldest is 13 and we have one, you know, all the way down to a one-year-old with not a two-year gap. Ever. That's in, that is incredible. And I'm, do you guys homeschool or what do you do for? Yes. For yes. Uh, my wife, my wife homeschools the kids, which, you know, all of this sounds really extreme, but here in, here in Steubenville where we live, we are one of many families. Um, right. Are, are very similar. You know, every time I tell someone we have eight kids and they go, Oh, wow. Wow. Then one of my kids says, yeah, but the Puros have 13. <laughs> so it's at 13 and you know it's like it's like yeah we're just we're we're just a sort of a normal family here yeah and, as as opposed to out here <laughs> like where you grew up and where i am right now and then i have five children so you know I, even that's that's nothing compared to over there but over here you're almost you're a weirdo for having over two. Oh yeah i mean i know when we go out there to visit it's like when you have a family that that's big out that big out there you don't even register as a family for people, like they think you're a, uh, like a daycare or something. <laughs> like they don't, they don't look at you and go, are these all yours? It's just like, Oh, this yeah. is sort of outing. <laughs> yeah. They don't even ask that. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that sounds like you have an exciting house, an exciting home life, uh, wonderful yeah. wife and, uh, and wonderful that's children. Cool. So my oldest is 14 and she's a freshman here at the school. Uh, that I teach at and, and I'm headmaster at. So it's kind of an interesting experience this year. It's been good. And then we, we homeschool the other ones. So yeah. So yeah. So your oldest is a 14 year old daughter. My oldest is a 13 year old daughter. So we're right. We're in a similar situation, I suspect. Yes, indeed we are. And okay. all the good, all the interesting things that come with it's that. Been, age. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been new for me. It, it, that's a good word right there. New is for me too. <laughs> like yeah. where I say sometimes, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to leave now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go and uh, chop some wood. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit about your family. I have another question, and this is uh, – I love G.K. Chesterton. I already mentioned him, but there's a quote that actually is on this mug that I used to have that said um, – it was from G.K. Chesterton. It said, daybreak is a never-ending glory, but getting out of bed is a never-ending drudgery. <laughs> <laughs> Besides completely agreeing with G.K. Chesterton about that, I wanted to ask you what what is it that gets you going in the morning? What is it gets you? What is it that excites you? That gets you up in the day that you want to accomplish that you want to do? Besides maybe one of your kids jumping on you, um, what is it that that gets you going? Yeah, um, you know the thing that I love doing more than anything else is uh, is research. So I. I really, the days where I know I have nothing to do but just go to my office Mm -hmm. are the days where I jump out of bed and I'm excited to go. And when, and when I know the next day is that day, that's when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited the night before. (laughs) That's that's, that's amazing. When I look back on my life and, and, you know, in grad school, there's been other opportunities where I've had large stretches of time, months um, in grad school, sometimes a couple of years where, Mm -hmm. where really that was all I was doing were the times when I think of just my own sort of, um, you know, happiness. I don't know. I mean, I mean, of course I'm joyful. I'm happy with my family, but when you think of like your kind of personal, like when did I enjoy stuff the most? Yeah. Right. Those periods are the times where it's like, wow, that was great. So that, that, that the process of research and then is it, is it the process or is it like when you discover something, make some new connection or is it all that, or what about research is it? I love this, the, the problem solving. Okay. And, and like you said, the discoveries, right? So, so 
in, in historical research in particular, you are basically an archaeologist, right? You're, so you're, you're, yeah. it's like a really nerdy form of archaeology as opposed to, you know, Indiana Jones or something. It's like, although at one point in one of those movies, he says that 90% of archaeology is done in the library, right? Uh -huh. Right. It's that sort of thing where you're just, you're, you're, you're searching for answers in mm -hmm. texts and, mm -hmm. and when you find them, you know, um, when you find connections, when you, when you say, I mean, you're reading something, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe he just said that. That was like the perfect mm -hmm. thing for him to say. It's <laughs> like exactly what I needed him to say or something. That sounds yeah. like to a certain sense, that is the case. So, and uh, that I, I actually get like adrenaline rushes when that happens, which is, uh, yeah, I'm sure. That's, that's, that's really cool. No, that's super cool. And I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I no, really it is because I mean, as an educator, I mean, that's what I, I want to give a little bit of that kind of opportunity for the young men and women I teach. I was, in fact, in history class just yesterday. I was talking to them after we watched your little video because we're studying the high Middle Ages, actually moving into the late Middle Ages, about to do Black Death here. And I was thinking, what is the medieval worldview? And I was listening to your your um, lecture just because I was interested in that. And I, I was going to interview you and I was kind of I've, I've had that on my watch later list forever. So um I just wanted to listen to it. And, and what I was t saying to them was, you know, research. I want you guys to do some research. And one of their projects is to do some research now. And I said, I discovered, I mean, I showed them, I kind of shared with them. Here's something I've been researching because I've been wanting to know where did critical theory come from? Like mm -hmm. what I, and I, because they ask a lot of questions about that in, in class, these high school students, you know, you know, the race stuff and the, you know, transgender issues and things like that. And so I was looking at it and I, all these discoveries I found as I was researching was, is exciting. And it was, it was, it was like kind of finding a little Eldorados, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it, it is, it's really, it's really enjoyable and fun. And, and I like, um, like I said, the problem solving aspect. So, you know, like I, 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 I do it, I have a big whiteboard in my office and I write my problems down. And then as I come up with solutions or tentative solutions, I'm like writing them down. And then, and it's just a, it's a sort of puzzle, you know, or, or yeah. Yeah. And, and so it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really an enjoyable thing. It's, and I, and I enjoy teaching too. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I, I don't. I enjoy being in the classroom and talking to students, and but I'm never excited about that the way I am about about the work in the office. <laughs> I, think, I think I I think I got the flavor. I mean, you're basically a nerd, and that's okay. Yeah, you're you're right. a legalist nerd, um, so <laughs> that's I think right. we're get, getting the flavor here. Um, so no, that's that's awesome. that's excellent. I like the idea of the puzzle because it's it's not only is researching, it's like finding the pieces, but also. Now, where does this fit on this giant puzzle? I don't even know what the picture is. You don't even have a right. box necessarily. You maybe have a frame of what maybe the pictures look like, or you know, it's a landscape. But that's so you're not only finding the pieces, you're you're making the puzzle too. In one sense. Yeah, no, that's that's totally right. It's like it's like it's like a like a like a building you're constructing, and you're not sure what the final prod what the final project is even going to be, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's kind of how I build my stuff on my property. I have a little property. I start building and whatever happens, happens. And it's kind of exciting. That must be beautiful. <laughs> you're, you're... It, it is a little bit. Sometimes it, sometimes it works out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew, I want, to, I want to ask you now a little bit about um, new polity, um, because I'm kind of new to, to this whole uh, world, post-liberal thought, uh, new polity. Um, historical political theology, or just political theology, these words and these ideas. Um, let's start with, since it says on in your biography, I mentioned that, you know, you, were, you explore political theology or historical political theology. What is political theology? Because those words are kind of strange to a lot of people. Yeah. No, I know. And I kind of wish we didn't have to use them sometimes, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, so branches of theology, you know, there, there are things like Christology, um, huh. ecclesiology, right? Trinitarian theology, moral theology. These these branches are 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 all basically taking the same data, so the data of of revelation as well as um, that from philosophy, and attempting to answer different batteries of questions with it. And so the schools of 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 theology are really are just different 
angles of attack on the same pursuit of the same truth, right? Which is, of course, the truth of man and God. Right. You know, you, what are the questions you're you're asking? This mm-hmm. the sort of cosmos of truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, for political theology, the questions are are who are we socially? All right. So, mm-hmm. what, what does it mean for to say things like man is a social animal, man is a political animal? Um, we are inherently social or inherently ecclesial or something. We start. Sometimes we say those sorts of things, and it's like, well, what's the content of all those assertions, right? right. What yeah. does it mean for us to be political? Why yeah. we're always organized socially? Um, and so, so, what makes so it logical, of course, is the belief that 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 well, there's two two aspects to it being theological. I think I mean one of them is that we learn from revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, we learn a, a great deal of material that helps us answer those questions. But then also um, that Christianity itself. So, so th- there's also the sort of the the. I mean, I, I guess it has to be the assertion that that the political itself is oriented towards God or towards man's final end, which is the supernatural end, right? So, community- right. And so you take, which is again, taking that sort of basic conclusion of Christian faith or the basic premise of Christian faith, and then saying, if this is true, if it is true that man is destined to the vision of God, then what piece, what place does our political activity here on earth have in that um, project or in that sort of destiny, right? Right, right. Those are the sorts of questions. That makes sense. So the, obviously political theology, obviously the first realization is that political is not the, what you see on TV, you know, the Republicans and Democrats screaming at one another or, you know, arguing about something. Um, or it's it's not just politics when we say, oh, that's just politics. It's a derogatory right. kind of term. It, it's, it means that, that the political nature of man, the social nature of man in light of being created by God and for God. Right. Exactly uh, right. Yeah, okay. so I, mean, I think I would say that one of the basic um, agendas of of political theology, good political theology, is to rescue politics from that kind of worldly, cynical um, perception that you mentioned. Okay, that makes sense. That, that's I think that's why I got excited about New Polity, and I am excited about New Polity, and when I got into all I've, I mean, the main post-liberal thought I've read and looked into is uh, Deneen's book. Sure. Uh, and I really, really like that. I actually shared it with some friends. I shared it with my brother-in-law. He read it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really, and I've read some articles on New Polity um, and some of the, the journal articles sure. as well. Sure. Um, and I, and I've, I, it makes sense to me because I find in myself that the cynical, secular, worldly politics, which is definitely um, leads to despair or despondency. Like this doesn't, it doesn't, it's not fulfilling. It doesn't, it can't fulfill. And so I'm left, I've been into politics for a long time. Um, You know, my dad, my dad is a a conservative. Um, He's an agnostic, but he's a conservative. He's a, he's moral. I mean, he, um, he just, he cares about our country. He loves our country, that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. um, I've liked politics, but oftentimes I get to where situations happen where the, you know, whether it's this recent election cycle or things like that, or what's going on with big tech and censorship and all these things. And you kind of get to the point, you're kind of going, what's the point of politics? And you get this cynical, you know, I'm not a despair, but kind of a depression almost like, what's the point? I mean, this just the people yeah, are doing what right, right. do. I mean, it, it becomes the deeper I've gotten into Christian politics, Christian mm-hmm. thought, the more baffling the world of mainstream politics has become to me <laughs> because, okay. because I see that what you're talking about, the, just the sort mm-hmm. of chaos of, of dishonesty, lying, propaganda, yeah. manipulation, power, yeah. And think, why would anyone care about this? Like, why? Yeah. Why are there people who are obsessed with this, who, who 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 watch it and read it and listen to it and like focus life around this stuff when it's so obviously empty 
and manipulative and full of untruth, right? Yeah, totally. Would you say that that in this this um, position, a person like that, I would say I've been through that same experience. Is that what you're looking for? Is the theology part? All, like, no, I guess the political part, the truly political part, but also added to the theology part. Because you're looking, you you want to find God. Everybody wants to be satisfied in God and find God and have in their search for happiness. That's the only thing that can really fulfill man's desire. But at the same time, you want it to work in your daily life. You want it to work in the horizontal sphere, you know, with your neighbors and your community. Um, so I, I guess it's it's politics seeking theology in that sense. Yeah, that, and that that is that is exactly the answer my wife always gives me when I say okay. that, because she says she'll say. Well, Andrew, you need to understand that they don't have religion. They don't have, and so this this belief these 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 beliefs they have in the truth of whatever party they're a part of or whatever position and the evil of the people they're fighting against and the sort of rabid sort of conviction is is what you were just saying is that this is an this is this is a substitution for for um, the truth and for, for God. And, and so it's, you know, they, they, it's almost like if you, if you care about the world, which is a good thing and you mm-hmm. have God, then you are driven perhaps into that kind of um, political worldview. I don't know. What do we call it? That kind of, it's yeah, a, yeah. a fanaticism that is, that is irrational. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Ide- I mean, I guess ideo- ideologies is one thing. Ideology, driven to yeah. the ideological yeah. thinking, right? And although now it's weird because the, the politics is not is no longer ideological in the sense of being a, a coherent intellectual system, right? It's it's more mm. it's more an aesthetic, right? It's like it's mm. like warring our our warring brands. Yeah, so that's interesting. What they what they hate about each other is the way each other looks, the kind of word right. each other uses. Whether or not yeah. they say the right thing, whether or not they have the correct um, agenda items, not because they intend to actually ever execute the agenda items. That's not what's important. Mm-hmm. What is the symbolism of, of, of having the proper ones in the proper order? Yeah. Which yeah, is that really makes sense. aesthetic, isn't it? It's an aesthetic, whether or yeah. not you like Nike or Reebok. Right. I've never thought about it as an aesthetic, what you're just saying right now. I've never used that term. But it, I guess in my my vocabulary, in my some of my friends we talk, it's it's we use the term optics, but I guess that's the same type of thing. It's it seems like it's a lot of politics is just optics. It's just what things look like, what things sound like in, in that sense. But I, I aesthetics actually is a little bit richer of a concept. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think of it that way, I guess, because it I connect it to in my mind to the way branding works and the way mm-hmm marketing works right so like there's this um uh you know lots of times you'll learn marketing and and then people will act as if marketers are 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 responding to demographics you know okay Mm -hmm. all right we have to sell it to the middle-aged suburban housewife demographic or something Mm -hmm. right yeah the, the the truth, of course, of mass marketing is that it as much creates the demographics as it does respond to them, right? So yeah, oh yeah. So if you become, you know, okay, you like country music, say, well, you don't just like country music. Country music comes with a whole battery of related brand identifiers, right? So that means mm-hmm. like, you know, whatever, a pickup truck, and you like camouflage baseball cap, and you like, you know, Carhartt. Yeah, you have certain politics, and you have certain. Uh-huh. And certain, and you say things in certain ways, and you kind of, and there's a whole sort of uh, persona that mm. along with those identifiers. But those are the demographics, and the reason why it, it's like those demographics are created by overlapping branding campaigns, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, you're, you're. This, this is the way mass, the mass market, mass media, mass uh, capitalism works. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that it's in everybody's interest, all the different companies that are selling products into certain demographics to exaggerate and accentuate those those essentially aesthetic uh, identifiers, right? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 absolutely right, and that's profound. I think what you're saying, and it it makes it gives the feeling that when you when you realize this kind of thing, 
you know, in different words, I, I have some of the same realizations, not, not quite as, as in depth as you're talking about, but I, I love what you're saying is, is you feel manipulated, you know, and that's what makes you feel the, the kind of cynicism and kind of uh, the, the, the depression, so to speak. And then you're like, well, I want to get out of this. So many people now are like, what are, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live in light of, the, you know, right. January 6th and, and the censorship and the election stuff and, and the, you know, the all the alleged, you know, uh, conspiracy theories, quote unquote. You right. know, how, how are you supposed to live now? And everybody's asking that question. And most people are saying something that seems to be right. And it sounds like and I want to hear one. I mean, if, if it's you think it's. A kind of general right um, response. You don't have to go into the details right now, but is kind of shut off as much as you can all those lies and that mass media stuff. Shut it down as much as you can and live your life with local people and your neighbors and your family and stuff like that. That seems to me the general response of many people. Yeah, uh, it's totally correct. It's, you know, one of the things I think is happening and this has happened, similar things have happened throughout history is, is mm. that the world is being reconstituted. <laughs> I don't want to be, mm. too, but, but, but basically we're, we're experiencing, I guess what I think of as sort of the digital revolution here. Mm. Yeah. Similar in, in, in historical significance to the industrial revolution, except very, though very different in particulars. Mm. And mm. What happens in these sorts of revolutions is that the world becomes re-articulated in a new frame. Okay. So, so all this is a way of saying, I guess that I think more and more people are viewing the real world. So the physical world, the world uh, outside, uh, you know, the world of human relations, the world of actual natural objects uh -huh. to the digital world. So, yes. so saying this is that the digital world becomes more real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the, the physical world or the world of real human relations. Mm -hmm. And and you can see this in lots of different ways. I mean, I think some of the most some some of the most obvious is that like social problems, perceived social problems are are really problems that are real because they're in the social media feed, not because they're real in the real world. And gotcha. they go away from the social media feed, they're solved. Like like, for example, how now that Joe Biden is president, it seems that racism is solved. Right. <laughs> yeah. When, when uh -huh. racism was a problem and you go, oh, that's hypocrisy. Or it's like, no, 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 no. You're missing what's happening. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether or not systemic racism is a real thing, regardless mm -hmm. of it is a real thing in the real world, it was most certainly a real thing in the social media timelines. And right. Now it's not. Right. So the, the solution to racism to, in the in the social media timelines was to elect Joe Biden. That then happened, which means it's now gone. Right. So gotcha. it, what I mean is you, I hope you're seeing what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say is that it becomes the case that 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 what is encountered in the digital world is interpreted as being more fundamental or yes. more than what is encountered in the real world. And so you leave the digital world and you go sort of enact it in the physical in the physical world yeah no that makes sense i, I definitely what you're saying with the racism was a great example you know where it the the the, the those that are interested in the aesthetic or creating the aesthetic whether right. it's a company trying to benefit with profit or a politician trying to benefit with power or an election um something to that effect the the benefiter so to speak of the aesthetic are promoting the aesthetic but that aesthetic is making people see reality through the aesthetic instead of reality itself, or at least there it's d distorting reality or becoming right. more fundamental in their perception of reality. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, to me, the classic example would be you go to a, you know, back when restaurants were open, um, remember a long time ago when restaurants were open, like yeah, 10 maybe. years ago. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of fuzzy, but there, you know, you'd see, see a group of people sitting there and, you know, four people sitting across at a booth and they're all on their cell phones. Yeah, exactly. Literally, exactly. literally the time where you go to eat together, which is one of the most human bonding moments. You're all looking down at a phone. Yeah. 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 And, and you're perceiving like what people think of you at that moment through the digital media, not what people think of you across the table. Right. You know, no, 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 indeed. I mean, I, I think that it, it, I, I don't know that. I mean, sometimes you worry that I'm exaggerating this, but I don't think so. I mean, I, it's really happening where 
people, you know, the, the, the relationships that are occurring, say on Facebook or something mm-hmm. are precedents over the relationships in the real world. And, and, I, and I've talked to, you know, it's like, how to put it this way. It's very sinister because, because human beings, it seems to me, real relationships are fraught with anxiety for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you remember being in high school and like liking a girl and you wanted to ask her out on a date and it took you like two weeks. I'm talking about myself here. So maybe this was in your <laughs> courage to call uh, a yeah. house. And that meant probably her dad or mom was going to answer the phone. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. The phone, and then you were going to talk to her, but eventually the desire to, you know, have some sort of romantic relationship overpowered all of the, that resistance and did it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar thing exactly. happens um, every day when you just go out, unless you're like an extreme extrovert, um, extrovert, just going out to uh, any sort of social gathering. Right. There's a certain mm-hmm. there's a, um, a friction that has to be overcome. And the human yeah. desire for social interaction, the human desire for relationship overpowers those anxieties in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we do it. But the thing that the digital world, one of the things the digital world has done, it seems, is shifted that calculus where it gives you just enough of the social hit, mm-hmm. the anxiety to often overcome or overwhelm the drive for the social. Yeah, right. It, re- it replaces, it, it, it's a half social or like less social. And I think it's been- actually tricking you into thinking, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like a drug where you're, where you're, you're right. seeking happiness. But the drug gives you just enough of a hit, just enough of a sort of echo of happiness that yeah. accept it because you're lazy, right? Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. It, that, it, which is which is the sinister part. I mean, you're you're talking right. about it right now. That that is indeed sinister. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so you 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 use the drive for friendship in order to destroy friendship. This is demonic, mm-hmm. right? Yes, exactly. And it's the nature of sin, and it's the nature of sort of demonic action. Um, so. Yeah. Go so, ahead. In, in in light of in light of that, I mean that that is, I mean, uh, the reality of the situation we're in today. New polity has, I mean, exists. I mean, as far as I understand, in order to try to show a way out, a different way of living. And in fact, it's not just an academic thing. It's it's trying to show here's a way to conceive of reality according to reality. Not right. here's here's a new optics. Here's a new aesthetic. It's, it's yeah. no, it's, here's a way to live based on human nature. Is that, what is new polity? I guess, what is new polity to you in your words that you can yeah, break so down? There's, 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 what is it? It's, it's a, I guess it's a complicated thing because it, like you said, it has, it has multiple avenues or multiple components to it. Um, myself, because you, like you said, I'm a sort of legalistic nerd. <laughs> Got my, to pay. My, my primary uh, obsession or my primary sort of mission within the the movement is a a more academic Mm -hmm. so i'm trying to figure out intellectually how to explain what's wrong with the world and to explain its all alternatives right so that right people need to be let me put this way like uh, my students here they they come into the classroom and they're locked in their thinking initially in these kind of uh, uh, binary dualities, right? Right, right, right. Capitalist, Republican, Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and um, private, public, these sorts of binaries that the modern world has has constructed that always operate with the binaries operate within the the worldview, not against yes. it. So it's a misconception. Yes. That those binaries are 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 competing worldviews. That's not true, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're they they are actually what constitute the worldview is the maintenance mm-hmm. of the binaries. Mm-hmm. Destruct. You know, one of the first things I have to do is 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 kind of gently say, "Listen, we can think through and outside of these binaries and and show not only that both of them are wrong, but that they actually require each other and function together." In yeah, order that, this world. Yeah, that, that's that's profound and that that's hard to see at first i know for right. me um i remember when i first got into post-liberal thought one of, i mean i remember one of the first articles i read on new polity actually was about i think mark 
wrote it and it was about defunding the police. Right. Because, because the aesthetic is, you know, the left, they want to defund the police and get rid of police and they don't care about police and crime. And the right is we care about crime and we care about law and order and we are all about police. And when I, when I read the Marx, I think it was Marx article. Yeah. um, Okay. And I read that and that was it. That to me is a very solid example of what it means to be post-liberalist. Let's think about police in a different model, in a different worldview, within a different structure. And I, I mean, to me, yeah. that, what, what are police? What are they for? How do you think of that in light of we're all de- God is real. Man is created in his own image. You know, we are called to bring forth a social order in light of who he is and for him and cooperating with him. What is what are police like? That was really interesting to me because it got me out of the just the red blue feed. The fear, one of the things that we had, I think one of the basic intellectual missions in, of new polity is getting people outside of the fear that if they concede any ground, mm-hmm. then their whole sort of bunker will crumble, right? Yeah, the, do- the domino chain will be all will come uh, yeah. fall down. I can't concede any ground to social justice way of thinking because if I do, they'll take all of it and I'll be crushed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or I have to be a defender of, of sort of rigid libertarian economics Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because if I can't concede any ground and it's like what, what, what the, what realizing that the binaries are not actually opposed to each other. Uh, at a more fundamental level, but are actually partners. When you realize that, then you yeah. realize that that's a mistaken idea that you can't concede ground because you're not engaged in that binary fight. You're yeah, right. outside of that fight and observing it and saying, right. here's why both these guys are wrong um, or here's a way of us doing, thinking about things differently or, or whatever in order, in order to, um, it's, and it's not, the matter for this, it, the Christian position is not, sort of taking a little bit from the left and a little bit from the right, like, Oh yes. What it, it, it's actually the, 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 the deeper understanding is when you come to realize that that's actually what they're doing to Christianity. (laughs) So Christianity is the fundamental position. And then where we see resemblances on right or left is perhaps places where, where the people on the right or the people on the left are themselves preying upon the truth, which is Christianity. Yeah, I like the I like the image you just said. I want to interject because image, making yeah. Christian the Christian vision to me the church fundamental to right. your understanding of reality instead of just a group within larger society. And that's a little bit. I, I don't. I really want to read your book. I've not read your book, sadly. Church beyond before church and state, but I've heard some things about it, and I've talked to my brother about it a little bit, and it's really interesting for one because it seems like that's a major part of new polity and i think christian post-liberal thought at least is to try to show the church or the christian society whatever you want to call it is fundamental and this right left thing is not fundamental that's accidental that's just people trying to to create some order not even necessarily within the christian order they're just trying to create an order that's that's right and you have it's it's a it's somewhat of a dicey situation i mean post-liberalism in general is kind of a a dicey because mm. there's a lot of people who call themselves post-liberal or think of themselves as post-liberal and what they really amount to is um or what they often amount to is is authoritarianism right so like mm. so what i'm really against are libertarians and libertarian mm. thinking and so i think I, I i believe in strong authority and power and centralized power you know and mm. And, and that, that, again, is to fall back into the binary, right? Yeah. Yes. And not understand that, no, that the Christian insight is that the freedom of the individual is not in competition with the, pow- the proper ordering of authority in society. Mm-hmm. To start to understand that. So it's like I'm in favor of both individual freedom and the common good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, no, that's, those that's aren't competition. They're in fact they they require each other. Can you think of a a great for in you maybe in some of the conversations you've had in your circles a particular issue, contemporary issue that can help illustrate what you're saying right now? Um, 
but I, I brought up the police, but I'm sure you can think of a better one than that. Probably something that shows here's an issue that makes you keep falling. It's easy to fall into the binary. It's easy to fall into the left, right, red, blue thing, capitalist, socialist, whatever binary you're right, right, talking right, right. about. And, and but here's a way that you can think about it differently in in, a, in what I would consider a new polity foundation. Okay, well, well, maybe. I mean, I I don't know if this is a good example, but it's what I was just thinking about because I was about to teach it. Um, <laughs> but perfect. In if you read Hayek, F.A. Hayek, the autonomous uh-huh. libertarian, um, and actually John Rawls as well, um, was this sort of thing where they one of the one of the things they say about liberalism and libertarianism is really what they're talking about. Um, uh, so individual freedom uh, as mm-hmm. the it, it, as the sort of objective to maximize individual freedom is that a pluralistic society, you get a society that has a great amount of diversity in ends that are being pursued. Um, and Hayek goes on and on about this. Um, okay. And that, that, and then, so he wants to put that in juxtaposition then to a centralized or authoritarian or socialist or whatever you want to call it, um, sort of a regime where the plurality of ends is reduced to something that the, 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 power structure decides is the end, the proper okay. end. Okay. okay. So that's the sort of binary that we normally live in. Yeah. There. Yeah. But when you actually look around and you actually look at history, what you mm-hmm. actually see is that liberal societies over time do not become more pluralistic, but actually become dramatically more homogenous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Which is what's going on today. Right. So, okay, the idea, Hayek's entire work, The Road to Serfdom, is about how having choice, having lots of choice, um, is, is like a good thing, and that, and that mm-hmm. open markets produce choice. Mm-hmm. What, what actually happens in real life is that as free markets, capitalist markets play out, it's actually reduced, right? So, so, so for mm-hmm. example, um, you know, a hundred years ago, Louisiana, say New Orleans, if you went down there, was very, very different than Ann Arbor, Michigan. Right. right. Yeah. Now we have every. Yeah, I get. Where now they're going. not. Now they're exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, We've like, gotten rid of the small, the small shops, so to speak. Which, so the which, diversity and the plural yeah. that underwrites pre-liberal um, society mm-hmm. is annihilated. In the extension of a homogenous market slash political regime, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what happens to choice then? So it's like you have an increasing amount of autonomy, okay, I guess, but the the scope for that autonomy is steadily collapsed, narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So so it's like it's like an example would be um uh uh, the other day I was at the grocery store and Sarah, my wife sent me a message on the phone saying, pick up a box of granola bars. And so I went to the aisle and there's like a thousand different kinds of granola. <laughs> I, you know, what I was supposed to get, right. It was ridiculous. Yeah. How, many, how many choices there were uh-huh. and looking at it and going, this is what these, these sort of libertarian thinkers think choices. Uh-huh. Look at all the different kinds of granola bars. Uh-huh. You're like, well, what if I don't want granola bars? Okay. Sorry. To pick a box of granola bars, but look at all the choices you have. Yeah, and it's like, but I don't want, <laughs> you know. And it's like, and it's like, there's a certain, there's a certain sense in which it's like the market is is like the grocery store, right? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. I don't want granola bars, and you can go into the aisle, the next aisle, and pick from all the canned tomatoes or something. And you're uh-huh. like, hey, but what I would really like to do is leave the store. Uh-huh. That's at the point where the guards it, and they're going, no, you man, you can't leave. Exactly. Yeah. This is the only place to be, but look at all the choices you have. And then over time is that the store shrinks, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller so that, so that the choices become more micro, but there's many more of them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, It Um, it increases the quantity, like quantity is increased in some form, like the number of items is increased. But yet the actual choice of what kind of items you can get is decreased. Exactly. So once you start to see that dynamic historically, right? Like that's mm-hmm. like, so people look the same. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, people's, it, the, the sort of myth of hyper pluralism, right? Mm-hmm. When 
where in fact it's like it's like it's like the myth of pluralism uh, a great place a great place to see that would be in universities, for example, where mm. the universities are, you know, diversity, 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 but then the outcome is every university is exactly the same. Right. Exactly. Like yeah. there, there is no independence. It doesn't matter which university you go to. They are identical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is, and they're identical in their meaningless diversity. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is, that is exactly the dynamic of the libertarian society, right? So the point then is, is, is the point, because I'm, I'm trying to answer your question, is that seeing that, and then you say, well, I really do think freedom is about choice. Mm-hmm. So, so you don't even have to give up that kind of liberal idea of what freedom is. Mm-hmm. I really do think it's something about free choice. And it's like, well, then this doesn't seem to be maximizing it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is seems there- to- yeah, it, it's questioning that it, it, new polity is what you're trying to explain, I think, is saying new polity's goals or what they hope to achieve is one, to see to see that the binary world is not the world, is right. not everything. Second of all is to show here's here's uh, the way you – here's the foundation in which to think about um, politics, meaning social, the social order, I guess, so to speak. And it would be you know this vision of man. Right. As, a, as a created by God, right? right. Um, I think fitting with what I understand as Aristotelian, at least some kind of Aristotelian view of man's a political animal, at least in exactly. some short form. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that the common good is a real thing and that community, val- community is a concept that's real and good. Um, individuals are real and good. And yeah. th- that's, that's the order we need to think with, whereas opposed to with the capitalist socialist vision, it's all a constant, it's continued concentration and homogenization. And right. it's hard, it's hard to see that because we have so many things, quantity yeah. of things in the grocery store, so to speak. As you're exactly example. right. But when you start to put those pieces back into place, you can start to see things like that individual, individual freedom is always a component of social freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is embedded yeah. within a society that is free or moving towards freedom. And, mm-hmm. then, and so, you know, then you say, well, in what sense, you, I mean, you, you start moving into a sense of, into a, a way of understanding that it's communities and the relationship between communities that allows for diversity mm-hmm. and for scope of freedom, right? Like mm-hmm. difference, not yeah. individual. If you, if you, if, because man is social in his nature, if you reduce him to a sea of individuals, you can't, you can't excise the sociality of man. That's impossible. And so the social aspect becomes, if it's not immediate and personal, the social aspect becomes huge and abstract and centralized, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is that, that phenomenon that we're talking about of homogenization. Yeah. Yeah. So it's by going smaller that we find more freedom, not less. Yeah, that, that's really – that's the paradox right there. By right. going smaller, by going more local, by by that kind of thing, by allowing human beings to kind of with, – without the aesthetic driving manipulative social media all that, right. what you would find is more diversity. What you would find is is more freedom and exactly. what you would find is stronger communities. Right. Uh, yeah. so which, is, which is a little bit ironic in our binary view because it seems like either you have a strong community and less freedom – or you have more freedoms and not as strong communities. That, that's correct. That is the way it's presented. I mean, directly. I mean, that that is like the the maximization of individual freedom is the simultaneous destruction of interpersonal bonds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing that restricts your freedom more than family. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's just, I, yeah. I have to I have to ask you a couple more because time's running out, and I'm man, I'm, okay. I'm enjoying this conversation so much. Um, I'm so glad that. We've been able to chat and I have a couple more questions. I waited too long to ask these because I wanted to ask somewhat, I guess I would be able to call controversial questions. But to me, I, I'm curious about these questions myself. The American founding, <laughs> you know, my, my wife and I talk about this. Um, we've, we've, we've been watching a documentary on like Thomas Jefferson and the different kind of, um, you know, thinkers and founders of our, of our nation. And, yeah. you know, the question has come up, you know, is, is this a Christian nation? Because a lot of people on the right, see it as a Christian nation. Um, and I guess people on the left see it as a Christian nation too. They might just de- de- describe Christianity different, but they see it as that. What would be Andrew Jones's answer? Is this a Christian nation? 
<laughs> well, I'm going to really post-liberal and say, what do we mean by nation? <laughs> awesome. so, so, <laughs> I figured you would do that. <laughs> let, me, um, uh, let me say, try to, I'm not an expert on American history or anything mm. like everyone mm. this question. And it's like asking this question, you know, is lobbing the grenade into the room of post-liberal what you're doing. Right, right. Um, I, I probably waited too long to lob that, but uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll end. We'll end with the carnage and then return someday for. All right. Well, let me let me put it this way: that a mistake that can be made is in is thinking that the abstract ideological system that the Enlightenment thinkers that were the the founding fathers, to the extent that they were enlightened or not or whatever, but the mm-hmm. the abstract sort of constitutional governmental system that they designed a mistake is to is to have a one-to-one correspondence between that and the actual republic at the founding right so what i mean is the republic was actually probably uh a whole bunch of small communities that were self-governing and living in their own way um Mm. And that they were then loosely uh, 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 combined and the language and the theory that these guys who were writing the documents that combined them used is almost incidental to the fact, to the way in which the people are actually living in the villages. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And and so to to think that it was founded as this sort of deist enlightenment, enlightenment thing. And it's like, well, that's not the way it was out in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, regardless of what. Philadelphia wrote down, yeah. right? It's, it's like theory versus reality. The reality was they already were an independent. They were independent. They were an independent republic in some extent, operationally. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and so maybe when one of the things that happens is that is that we're sort of missing the argument. It's like arguing about what with, or with the with the founding fathers wrote. Mm. it's like well that's interesting, I guess. But mm. what would be interesting it would be to argue about what was actually there. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I like I like that distinction. That's that's actually a a, a new concept in my mind. To, to, I've had this conversation many times with many people, and I don't really have a clear answer on it. But this is actually a helpful um, distinction: the the ideas of the founders in the documents versus the lived reality of the people that decided they would do this experiment. Exactly. Um, yeah, and what? How are they living? And then we can start saying, well, maybe maybe the sort of corruption of the republic. Mm. It, the the increasing fulfillment of what was in the abstract documents. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly what I was just about. In my mind, the first thing that happened was what's happening is we're we've gone away from those. I guess it's the top, the, the some of the de Tocqueville stuff that I know of, which right. is like those mores, those those traditions, mores, the ways that people thought that the reality they started with, so to speak, wasn't this ideological um, thing, this document right. with all these these ideas. It was. I'm free. I, I, this is my community. This is my church. This is my, my parish, whatever. These are my neighbors. This is the road we need to b- build now. Okay. Now right. we have this mill over here. Okay. Let's, how are we going to get that? Oh, we'll need some wood over here in this forest. Whose is that? Okay. How, can we have some of that? How would that work? Well, here's a, you know, some town council. That's what happened. Sure. That's what made America, America. In that sense, it, it is, it was Christian in some sense then for sure. I would say, because those people were Christians. So they uh, had exactly, a view. Exactly right. That's that's the question. Is is yeah. the reason why the question is it founded as an American as a Christian nation? It's like, well, I I can we really talk about the founding of nations or mm. or if if you because those are those are abstract in a sense. I mean, nations right, right, are, right. Are so if you're if you're sort of posing the the posing of the question, maybe you're already answering that it's impossible that they're Christian because Christianity mm. is not something that is is founded through the the, the, the documents of people like the, the founding fathers but are, is rather something that is either lived or not yes and and it can't be confined to a nation and boundaries obviously that's foolish exactly. and silly so, so you know yeah i mean those are the kinds of like i said someday i would love to do the research into this and, and have something really um sort of authoritative to say on it but that's where i well, you know, that's, that is super helpful, actually, Andrew. I, I, I appreciate that because to me, it gave me a new, new concepts and to think with, to think about this question with, and that's actually helpful. And that to me is, is one, again, rethinking what is a nation? What does it mean to be Christian? You know, what did the, when the founders had the founding documents, obviously Jesus Christ is not mentioned. 
in those documents. So what does that mean? Um, and as Christians, we all need to deal with this, whether you're Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox, you got to deal with this uh, in America, if you're living in America. And who, yeah. What does it mean to be American? So anyway, that that's really good. I have some more questions I'm not going to ask because they're more grenades, but you did dodge this one. I'm not sure it actually went off. Um, <laughs> so nice work. I don't know if you just grabbed it and put a pin from your pocket back into the grenade somehow. Um, but I, I think you did and you dodged that bullet, dodged that grenade. So, at, But it gave, gave me some fruitful stuff to think about and anybody else listening cool. to, to think about with. But I want to say thank you once again for this time together and for sharing the, the stuff about your life and what gets you going as that legalist nerd and some of your interest in new polity and some of your thoughts about the society today. Um, especially, I love the stuff about the mass mass inter, mass movement, mass entertainment, the mass information stuff with in regards to aesthetics as a way to conceive and think about that. That's That's helpful. I didn't get to talk to you about church and state stuff or the liturgical cosmos, but that might have to be for next time. That sounds great. Well, thank God bless you and all your work, and uh, the Lord be with you in all your work, and I thank you so much you for it. You God bless thank your family, too. Bye-bye.